a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. This is the third Sunday in January. And for many, many years now, the Southern Baptist Convention has encouraged churches all over the convention to set aside this Sunday to commemorate the horrific, murderous, infamous decision by the United States Supreme Court on January 22nd, 1973, that we call Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade. Prior to that horrific decision, 30 of our 50 states in the United States prohibited abortion without exception. 16 other states banned abortion except in certain special circumstances. And then, on January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade, in a very egregious example of legislating from the court, invalidated all these state laws against murdering unborn babies. They just took it on themselves to do that. Since January 22, 1973, this is hard to believe, but approximately 63 million innocent unborn babies have been slaughtered through the process of legalized abortion. It's been a holocaust of unimaginable proportions, the American holocaust. During this present one hour that we're meeting together with our class, 98 babies will have been killed somewhere in the United States in just one hour. And that goes on hour after hour, day after day, week after week, almost one million every year. Now, these numbers represent only the number of babies killed through what we call surgical or medical abortions. Because in addition to those numbers, we have to add in others that we really don't know how many there are. But millions of women today are choosing methods of birth control And these abortifacients kill millions of babies every year through a horrific process of chemical abortion. It's horrible. On their website, the American Life League says that pharmacy experts estimate that 14 million babies are killed this way every year. Can you imagine that? So many babies. In years past, on previous Sanctity of Human Life Sundays, I've done my best to offer biblical as well as scientific and logical evidence to help people see the horror of abortion from God's perspective, just to to realize how awful it is. And I'm not going to repeat those things again today. If you want to listen to some of those past studies, maybe get some help there in talking to some misguided pro-abortionists, if you've got any of those in your family or friends or anything, you know, I'll go ahead and include some links to those posts. Uh, when I post this study at AboundingJoy.com. So if you want to, you can check those out. Several years ago, Vicki and I were members of a different church. It was not a liberal church. It had a reputation for being a strong, Bible-believing church. And at the time, I would sometimes make announcements to the entire church regarding church training opportunities. Well, one Sunday... It happened to be close to an election day. I made an announcement about church training opportunities. And I just took that opportunity while I was there to encourage the church members to vote. And I said something to the effect, remember elections this week, remember to vote. And guys, when you vote, I would encourage you, vote like a Christian. 
not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, vote like a Christian. Find a pro-life candidate and vote for him or vote for her. <laughs> well, after that service in this Bible-believing conservative church, an angry deacon caught up with me, and he rebuked me for that announcement. And he said, you might as well have told those people to vote Republican. <laughs> Do you see the problem we've got here? Abortion is a moral issue. It's a biblical issue. It's a Christian issue. But even in our churches, if you take a stand on it, you run the risk of being accused of being political. Because, of course, it's true. In general, at least in recent years, Republican candidates have been overwhelmingly pro-life. Democrat candidates have been overwhelmingly pro-abortion. And so, of course, Democrat candidates would love to be able to shut Christians up by saying, hey, you got to stay out of politics. <laughs> I've heard that many times myself. I've been told that. And I hope you can see, guys, that's a tool of Satan. He's trying to keep God's people quiet about the legalized murder of babies. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he wants to destroy babies. They're created in the image of God, and he wants them dead, as many as he can kill. Now, I'm about to say some things that many people will consider to be very offensive. I'm aware of it up front. Maybe some of you are watching this. I'm praying, and I have prayed, that I'll be able to speak the truth, but that, that I'll be able to do it in love. I want to be very loving, and I want to be very gracious, but I don't want to soft-pedal sin. Biblical love does not soft-pedal sin, guys, just because some people might get upset or feel offended. So we've got to be really careful here. All right? This is the truth. The truth is almost all candidates of the Democrat Party of our day are outspoken supporters of abortion. No restrictions at all as far as they're concerned. It used to be, a few decades ago, fairly common to hear a candidate from the Democratic Party say something like this. And, and usually he would try to say it and sound kind of pious about it, very serious. <laughs> he would say, I believe abortion should be legal, but rare. Now, that was a very dumb thing to say, guys. I mean, let's just be honest. That's dumb. What they were trying to do was straddle a fence of some kind. They were trying to act like they were personally opposed to abortion, but didn't want to make it illegal. They, they tried to make that a position for a long time. Some of them did. But all somebody needed to ask them was, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Just exactly what is it that's growing in that mother's womb? Because if it's a baby, why on earth would you agree that it should be legal to kill it? And if it's not a baby, why on earth should it be rare? I mean... If that baby is just a lump of tissue, like a tumor or a malignant growth of some kind, why on earth should it be rare to remove it and get it out of there? See what they were doing? They were trying to straddle a fence by making a really foolish and really a satanic argument so that the slaughter of babies could go on and they could sound kind of pious. It was disgusting. <laughs> by the way, when Vicki and I were about to join Severe Heights, it's been many years ago now, but I was talking with Holly. Vicki and I were talking with Holly, and, and, and I shared this conversation I had with that deacon, with Holly Miller, our pastor, or, or he was going to be our pastor very soon. And when I told him what that deacon said, that I might as well have told people to vote Republican, 
Holly said, well, duh. <laughs> and I loved it. I nearly fell out of my chair, but I really appreciated Holly's clear stand on these issues. He wasn't intimidated or afraid to take a stand. I have been told by people who call themselves Christian now, and, and God knows their hearts, guys. I know I need to be very careful here. I love them. But they'll say things like this. They say, well, since the number of abortions haven't really been any lower under a Republican administration than they have under a Democrat administration, it's okay for Christians to vote for Democrats for other reasons because it doesn't make any difference as far as abortion is concerned. I've heard, I've heard people say that. They believe, I've heard them say that they believed under a Democrat administration, people would be less likely to even want an abortion. So actually, it might be more pro-life to vote Democrat. Can you imagine people saying that? I've heard people say it. When people try to make those kind of arguments, I like to point out, first of all, the reason I vote for Republican candidates isn't that I hope that somehow, miraculously, if a man is a Republican and he gets elected, he can simply ban all abortions. The president can't do that. But he does have the right to appoint members of the Supreme Court. And eventually, if we have enough justices on the Supreme Court who actually support the Constitution instead of justices who could care less about the Constitution and who are willing to do their best to be more or less an unelected super legislature enacting new laws from a secular, liberal, socialistic worldview, then we might be able to reverse the horrible and unconstitutional ruling of 1973. At least we can pray and hope that. But it's going to take the Supreme Court justices. Now, I need to say something else. It's very difficult for me to say, guys, but I feel in my heart I've got to say it. In this election we've just been through, I was sickened when I began to realize that there were pastors and spiritual leaders across America, men who I really did think were men of God, men who in the past I had, I'd had great respect for these guys. And I still love them. And they were telling people that we as Christians needed to realize that Christians could vote for pro-abortion candidates if we honestly felt that they could, on balance, do more for our country than the pro-life candidate. I'm going to name one of them because he wrote a book, David Platt. I had so much respect for David Platt. I loved him to death. He's written some really wonderful books. He's done some really wonderful work for the Lord as far as I could see. But he took that very position. I was horrified. And the only reason I'm mentioning him by name right now is because he chose to write a book. And the book was called Before You Vote. And he put his name on it. And up until I read Platt's book, I had great respect for him as a spiritual leader. And I still love him in the Lord. I really do. And I still do believe he's done a lot of good in the past. Please don't misunderstand this, but, but I need to be plain. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me just read something that he wrote in his book. I'm just going to read a sentence here. He's, he's talking about two issues here in this sentence, in this quote. He's talking about the issue of caring for the poor, and he's talking about the issue of abortion. And he writes very favorably, as if this was a reasonable thing to do, of a Christian. And he calls this Christian, Christian Z. So here's the quote. You can see it on your screen. Based upon how Christian Z weighs these two issues as they appear on this grid, she may decide, listen to this, she may decide to vote for the candidate that she believes will bring the most positive good to the poor 
even if she disagrees with what that candidate, with that candidate on the social issue of abortion. And when I read that, every time I read it, I find myself stunned. To me, and listen, I hope I'm wrong, but to me, it sounds an awful lot like an attempt to justify fence straddling in order to try to keep everybody happy and to avoid taking a stand that seems so clear to me to be the biblical right thing to do. Many men that I had held in high esteem seemed to take this non-stand in this election. And I greatly fear that our nation is going to pay a high price for it. If enough Christians decided, well, I don't like Donald Trump. I don't like his personality. I don't like the way he behaves. I don't like the way he talks. I don't like the thing he says. So I'm going to vote for the guy that's the pro-abortionist. To me, this kind of thinking is an abomination, guys. I just got to be honest. Listen, it's incredibly important that when office holders or candidates, I don't care what party they're from, Democrat or Republican, when they support ungodly policies, Christians must stand firm on God's word. And yes, I know there are other issues. Of course, there are other issues. Christians have a God-given responsibility to take care of the poor. Yes, we all know that. And there are different ideas about how best to do that. There are all kinds of plans. And for the record, I would say this. I don't think socialism is the way to do it or the welfare state is the answer. I touched on this a little bit in a video I posted a few months ago on Critical Theory, if you want to watch that. I know this can get complicated, and Christians really can disagree about what is precisely the best way to handle the economy or the best way to take care of the poor. But can we really disagree about abortion? I mean, come on. When I hear someone say, well, a good Democrat president will create circumstances that will make abortion less desirable, even if he is pro-abortion, I think, wait a minute. In fact, I've actually asked people this. I said, well, hold on, hold on. How about this? How about if we give moms in America the right to kill their five-year-olds? I mean, if they feel it's really necessary. Because think about it. A five-year-old can be a real problem for some moms. A five-year-old can threaten his or her mom's mental and emotional well-being. A five-year-old can keep a mom from getting the education she feels like she needs. Or a five-year-old can help her from getting the job she feels like she needs. And a five-year-old can create an enormous emotional stress on a mom. And five-year-olds are totally dependent on their poor mom, so shouldn't it be legal just to kill them for the emotional and mental and financial health of the mom? And besides, if that five-year-old's mom keeps him or her, what kind of life would that five-year-old have? Wouldn't it be better if it was just dead? Then maybe we could create the kind of society if we elect enough Democrats where moms would not want to kill their five-year-olds, right? But we need to realize that in case she does feel the need to kill her five-year-old, she should certainly have the right to kill her five-year-old. <laughs> does that make any sense? <laughs> you see you see what I'm getting at here? The only real question is, is that unborn child in the mother's womb a human baby or not? And science says it's a baby. It's a human baby. And logic says it's a human baby. And the Bible says it's a human baby. This child is a human baby. And to kill it is nothing less than murder. Now, I know I need to be very, very careful about questioning the motives of spiritual leaders that I've loved and admired in the past. And I know they could just be confused. But I also know, guys, how easy it can be to try to find ways to rationalize our positions and jump through mental and ethical hoops 
We'd love to be able to keep our consciences clear, but we'd also like to not offend people who might choose to no longer be our friends or our supporters if we say the wrong things. I know how strong that is, guys. Listen, I know from experience how painful it is to take a stand on what I believe to be right or what I believe to be the truth. I've had to do this before. When I knew that people that I loved, people that I cared about, were going to be really angry with me and maybe even separate themselves from me. And they did. And I've had friends and family members leave me or or call me some ugly names like bigot and hypocrite. (laughs) I don't like that. That's painful. I hate it. But Jesus never said following him or standing firm on his truth is going to be easy or popular. Since I've gone this far, let me just add this. <laughs> I've had people become very angry with me for voting for Donald Trump this past election. And they've asked, in effect, how can you possibly vote for that man? He has such despicable character qualities. He isn't at all Christ-like. He's disgusting. <laughs> and my answer has been, and it's been consistently, listen, I wasn't voting for who I'd like to have as a friend. <laughs> or a family member, or a spiritual leader of some kind. I mean, I mean, Joe Biden seems to have a milder, more likable personality than Donald Trump. I'll have to give you that. In many ways, Biden seems to be a nicer guy. Might, might rather him be in my family. I don't know. Maybe not. But maybe. <laughs> but I wasn't voting for that. I, I was voting, as I always try to vote, not on the basis of the favorability of the man himself or the likability or the disgusting, on how closely I thought his policies would align themselves to what I believe to be Christian biblical values. That's what I try to do every time I vote. I also want to point out, and I try to point this out to others, in reality, I had three choices, right? I could vote Democrat, Joe Biden, or I could vote Republican, Donald Trump, or I could stay home or maybe even cast a throwaway vote for a minor third-party candidate that I knew wasn't going to get elected. But I knew, just like everybody else knew, that either Joe Biden or Donald Trump was going to be the next president of the United States. And as a Christian, I've always accepted the fact that in a democratic republic like ours, I'm always going to be voting for a candidate with flaws. Because all the candidates have flaws. They're all human. (laughs) So I just, and and the the press, and their enemies, their opponents are going to really point those out as loudly as they can. So I just made up my mind a long time ago that as a Christian, I had to vote for the person that I believed would be most likely to support policies that would correspond to my biblical values. I just don't know any other way to vote. And in our day, that translates into values like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, issues relating to socialism, which I believe to be anti-Christian, Issues relating to the sexual revolution, you know, the LGBTQ issues. But listen, most especially, underline that, most especially issues relating to life. We are created in the image of God. So I'm talking about abortion, infanticide, euthanasia. And from my perspective, my Christian values in all of these areas are under attack from many people who identify with the Democrat Party. Now, that's just the way it is. But to say that it's okay to vote for a candidate who openly supports Planned Parenthood and openly supports the right to kill unborn babies, that they should be legal because you like what he stands for on other issues? Oh, I mean, I I just can't, I, I, I can't handle it. In my mind, 
it comes awfully close to something, somebody in the 1930s that would have said, well, yeah, I know Hitler's sending some people to the gas chambers and the concentration camps. I know that's really awful. That's really terrible. But, you know, I can support him because he's so good for the economy. And by making the economy good, he's doing good for a lot of poor people. And maybe eventually they won't send people to the gas chambers. What? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's just it's disgusting, guys, to me and abominable to support any candidate who supports Planned Parenthood and the right to abortion. So there. <laughs> That's probably more than enough for today's introduction, I imagine, don't you think? Some of you are thinking, Steve, you better turn that thing off before somebody comes and drags you off somewhere. <laughs> but listen, guys, my heart's been bursting with this stuff. And it just seemed that Sanctity of Human Life Sunday seemed to be the right Sunday to try for, for me to at least try to express what's in my heart. You don't have to agree with me, but you need to know how strongly I feel about these things. My goal is to stand firm on God's truth, and I want to do it in an uncompromising way. Loving? Oh, yes. Gracious? I hope so. I want it to be. That's not always easy to find that balance. And I realize that some people are kind of squeamish about standing firm because they know it's going to raise up opposition, and they may accuse me of being unloving. I realize that. I also realize that for some people on the other side, some people are so outraged about the anti-Christian positions of many Democrat leaders, they may think I'm not stating it strongly enough. <laughs> I know that. I want to be clear and I want to be loving. That's what I want. I've asked God to help me do that. I'm not sure I know how to do that. That's what I want. Okay. Let's move on here. The assigned Bible passage for today. Last Sunday, if you remember, Ron did a great job introducing us to the ministry of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus, while again reminding us of Luke's meticulous attention to historical detail. It comes through all through his book. That's in chapter 3. So today we're skipping all the way over to chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Now, over the next four Sundays, we're scheduled to go back to the things we skipped in chapters 4, 5, and the first part of chapter 6. But to summarize, in chapter 4, Luke tells us about Jesus' temptation by the devil in the wilderness and about his rejection in his hometown of Nazareth, and of his announcement that he's the one that Isaiah was prophesying about, and his ministry of preaching and healing, and he's casting out demons. And in chapter 5, Luke tells us about Jesus beginning to call his first disciples, Peter, James, John, Matthew. He also tells us about more of Jesus' healing miracles, and his dealing with the question about fasting there in chapter 5. In the first part of chapter 6, Luke tells us how the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus about the way Jesus was behaving on the Sabbath. They didn't like that at all. And then Luke names the men Jesus designated to be his apostles. So in the next few weeks, we'll come back to all of that. When we get to chapter 6, verse 17, we have Luke's introduction to the highlights of a sermon that Jesus preached. And it parallels a sermon that Matthew recorded, and most of us are more familiar with, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We call that the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And it's because Matthew starts that section of his gospel with the words, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he taught them this Sermon on the Mount. The sermon that Luke records here starts at verse 20, and it goes through the end of this chapter, so it concludes at Luke 6.49, so it's much shorter. 
many scholars believe that Jesus preached this sermon or the things in this sermon on a different occasion than the sermon Matthew recorded. So Matthew's sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke's sermon that we're looking at here is often called the Sermon on the Plain. And it's because in verse 17, Luke says, and he came down with them and stood on a level place. So it does sound like two different locations, doesn't it? It sounds like two different occasions. I think that's a reasonable conclusion. But I have heard men say that if you look at the place that is the mount where Jesus preached the sermon that Matthew records there near Capernaum, it looks like a level place. So Matthew's and Luke's accounts could be excerpts from the same sermon. Certainly there are parallels and similarities. It's very you'll, you'll see those very quickly, but it does make sense that as Jesus traveled around to different towns in Galilee and eventually on down in Judea and preached over the whole region, he probably preached similar messages many times. Everybody needed to hear this, right? So it wouldn't be at all surprising for him to repeat himself in his sermons. Also, we need to point out that most scholars believe that both Matthew's and Luke's accounts of the Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Plain are very much abbreviated. These are just highlights of those sermons. His actual sermons were much, much longer. These are the parts that God decided he wanted to be preserved in his word for us. One reason that most scholars think that has to do with the length of the sermons themselves. <laughs> I decided to time myself last week as I was reading Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and Luke's Sermon on the Plain. And so I read them out loud and timed myself. And, and, and I was able to read Matthew's account, chapters 5, 6, and 7, in just a little bit under 11 minutes, almost 11 minutes. The Sermon on the Plain that's recorded here in Luke chapter 6 took me a little over three minutes to read out loud. Now, it's almost certain that Jesus preached for more than three minutes or even more than 11 minutes. So it seems very reasonable to assume that what we have here are highlights that God wanted us to have. Now, if you're like me, we're tempted to say, why, Lord? Why didn't you give us the rest of it? And we really don't know why. Jesus certainly said many, many more words in the three years of his earthly ministry than are recorded for us in the Gospels. We know that. You may remember John wrote at the end of his book, he was talking about his deeds, but he said, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so our little human curiosity wants to say, well, Lord, why didn't you just write some more books? We could have, we could have, we'd like to have read some more. <laughs> but all we can conclude is that God in his perfect wisdom and his perfect power chose to preserve the words and the deeds of Jesus that are recorded in our Bibles, and he knew what we needed. So we have to conclude God saying to us, look, this is all you need. <laughs> and we trust him with that in spite of our curiosities. He knew what he was doing. So let's pick it up at verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So Jesus has been teaching and healing in the towns in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. And when he finished this sermon, Luke tells us that he went into Capernaum, so it's up on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. But already he's become famous. No one's ever taught like this before. His teaching was authoritative. <laughs> he, he knew what he was doing. He spoke the truth. The word of God came out of his mouth. 
he was getting a lot of attention. I mean, you remember at one point the Pharisees sent somebody to check on him and they came back without him. He said, why didn't you come back with him? He said, nobody ever spoke like this. He, he, he just overwhelmed people with his words. But on top of that, he was casting out demons and he was healing people, lots of people. And so at this point, Jesus already has attracted a great multitude, it says in verse 17. And they weren't just coming from the towns around where he was there in Galilee. They were coming from Judea, Jerusalem. That was about 80 miles to the south. And they were coming from Tyre and Sidon, way up from the north. People from Tyre and Sidon would have most likely have been Gentiles. Tyre and Sidon were not Jewish cities. They were up in Phoenicia, in the north of Galilee, over by the Mediterranean Sea. And the last three words of verse 19 are, he healed them all. He was healing a lot of people. They'd never seen anything like this. They'd never heard anything like this. Huge crowds are going to be following Jesus. That's going to be true the rest of his ministry. So he's definitely gotten their attention. And so he begins to teach. And this is what God inspired Luke to record for us. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, before we go on, this is a great example of an opportunity to apply a hermeneutical principle called the analogy of faith. It's, it's, it's a principle for interpreting scripture. Basically, what the principle of the analogy of faith says is this. If a passage in the Bible could possibly be interpreted more than one way, then we need to take into consideration other passages that may make it more clear. That's very common. Here's another way to say it. I bet you've heard this, this little saying. It's really good. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Yeah. So we want to see everything the Bible has to say about a particular topic before we make draw conclusions too quickly. The point is, since the Bible is God's word, God's the one speaking all the way through the scripture, we know it doesn't contradict itself. So it helps us to understand passages that may not be quite so clear by other passages that are a little more clear that deal with the same issue. And, and that's important in this passage. When Jesus pronounces blessings on the poor and on the hungry and on those who weep, on the surface, the way Luke writes it here, it could mean that he's talking about people who are physically poor or physically hungry or weeping over physical things. And sometimes that may be true. But we know from other scriptures that being physically poor in and of itself is not really a good reason for spiritual blessing. It's possible to be poor and hungry and still be indulging in a sinful lifestyle. We all know that. Be very rebellious toward God. That's not due a blessing. <laughs> not only that, but in Matthew's account, Jesus elaborates on this. He, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, they should be satisfied. So in Matthew, he makes it very clear he's speaking of spiritual things. He's teaching them and us that what many of them believed was wrong. What many of them believed was that the self-righteous Pharisees all around them who looked at themselves as very good at keeping God's commands that these Pharisees were the people most pleasing to God. That's what the people believed. People thought, and the Pharisees themselves thought, these Pharisees are the people most likely to have important roles in God's kingdom when God's kingdom finally arrives. And Jesus said, uh-uh. 
Nope. The blessed ones are the ones who recognize their spiritual impoverishment. The ones who realize that without the mercy and grace of God, they have no hope. They have nothing to offer. A little later in Luke 18, Jesus used a parable to teach this same truth. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. They hated tax collectors. They thought the Pharisees were godly people. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Really stuck on himself, full of self-righteousness. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said these words that shocked people at that time. He said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, he said, will be humbled. But the one who humbled himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We need to realize that apart from Christ, we can do nothing and we are nothing. In the same way, when we hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, because we realize our own righteousness, like Isaiah says, is filthy rags. When we honestly recognize our own lack of righteousness and hunger for the righteousness that only Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness, can give us as a gift, we will humbly receive it with thanksgiving and praise to Him. And again, because of the prevalence of sin in this world we live in, Jesus says if we'll, we, we should be mourning over this. But at the right time, when Jesus comes back, when Jesus sets things right, our mourning is going to be turned into laughter and dancing and joy, as we learned in our study of Isaiah. It's going to be good. <laughs> Meanwhile, we mourn over sin. We should. Look at verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And we've all heard this beatitude many, many times. He says the same thing in Matthew 5. But when it really begins to happen to us, <laughs> when we begin to realize that some people actually do hate us, some people really do revile us and exclude us, when it really happens, we usually don't feel very blessed at the moment. <laughs> Most of us feel kind of miserable. I mean, most of us are just wired that way. We can be very, very tempted to try to figure out how to keep it from happening. We want to keep everybody happy so that stuff doesn't happen. And we can become very skilled at rationalizing, at trying to straddle a fence, trying to escape the enmity, trying to escape animosity from others. We don't like that stuff. But here's the sad truth, guys. Listen, too often the only way we can escape that animosity and enmity is by compromising God's truth. My personal opinion, and again, I hope I'm wrong, God knows all our hearts, is that many pastors across this nation did that in the last election because they didn't like Donald Trump's personality. And I'm concerned that our nation may have to pay an awful price for it. But look at what Jesus says we're to do when others hate us and revile us and exclude us. Look at it. Rejoice? Leap for joy? Really, Jesus? Why does Jesus tell us to rejoice? Dance for joy? Isn't that kind of a jarring picture? Oh, looks like people are hating me now. 
They're spurning out my name as evil. They're excluding me. They're angry with me. They're reviling me. I better just dance me a jig. <laughs> well, the reason he says it is because we're all going to be in eternity before you know it. And then we'll be able to see God's perspective very, very clearly. Won't be any confusion then. And we'll realize that dancing for joy really was the most appropriate response. <laughs> Even though it seems strange to us right now. <laughs> it's difficult. Let me say one more thing here. I think most people are just like me. We are tempted to try to figure out a way to keep people happy and keep people liking us. We want that so badly, we're tempted to compromise, to get kind of mealy mouth, to get wishy-washy and kind of rationalize it away. Now, Jesus wasn't that way. And Paul wasn't that way. And by the way, neither were the great Christians of history. But most of us struggle here because we want everybody to like us. I mean, that's really important to us. <laughs> but listen, we need to watch out for the other extreme too. There really are some people out there who kind of take pride in making people angry. They seem to enjoy the notoriety that comes from always being difficult and disagreeable. They take pride in what they perceive to be suffering for Jesus when in truth they're just being deliberately offensive and obnoxious. You know what I mean? You've known people like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe Donald Trump. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And so, knowing that we'd be tempted to do all we could to avoid taking a stand that some people might find offensive, Jesus added in verse 26, Woe to you, i got to warn you, he says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Watch out. Watch out. The truth is, when we stand firm on God's truth, not everybody's going to like it. Some people that we thought liked us, some people that we thought were our friends, some people that we thought loved us, are not going to like it. We need to be prepared for that. Now, Jesus knew that we all have a terrible tendency to get unbalanced. So easy. We can so easily lose our perspective, guys. Walking with Jesus is, is a walk. It's constant. We need constantly wisdom from Him, direction from Him, discernment from Him. Listen, we can make up our mind to stand when it's very difficult. We can pray it through and make up our mind. I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to stand. And if people get upset with me, then so be it. But then, listen, if we're not careful, we'll have nothing but disdain for those who refuse to stand. You see what I'm saying? We may be determined to stand firm, but in the process, we can lose our graciousness. We can lose kindness. We can lose our gentleness. So immediately after these warnings, and Jesus making it clear, we go, when we stand firm, we're going to get persecuted. And so we may make up our mind to stand firm, not worry too much about whether people like us or not. But Jesus immediately adds these words that are very, very important to keep us balanced. And it's verses 27 through 36. And the theme all the way through this section is this amazing Christ-like love toward people who are difficult to love. Jesus knew that if we really did stand firm in the face of persecution while others are wimping out, we'd be tempted not to love those people very well. <laughs> and I'm talking about people of either group, actually. I mean, obviously, we can find it difficult to love people who are persecuting us. I mean, it can really be tough to love those people. We're supposed to love them too, by the way. But we can find it difficult to love people who just kind of tap dance around the issue so they can avoid persecution themselves. And so we can be tempted to look at them with disdain. But listen to what Jesus says, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father's merciful. Isn't that shocking? Jesus is talking about supernatural love here, guys. When we behave like this, people can tell we're, we're very different. We're not like the rest of the world. But listen, we'll only be able to love like this if we surrender to Jesus and let Jesus love others through us. We can't do that in our own power, not in the flesh. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But just stay balanced. Love doesn't mean getting spiritually wimpy and wishy-washy. No, 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 no. Well, let's quickly read the rest of this sermon. Verse 37 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Lost people love to use this verse to justify their sin. They say, hey, you shouldn't tell me my sin is sinful. That's judging. She just told us not to judge, right? But of course, what Jesus is telling us here is don't judge superficially. Don't try to play the role of the Holy Spirit by assuming you know what's in other people's hearts. You don't. Over and over again, God tells us not to shrink back from calling sin what he calls sin. So don't get those things confused. For example, he says, this is 1 Thessalonians. Paul said, test everything. Test everything. Hold fast that which is good. We've got to be able to discern what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. Jesus himself said it in Matthew 7. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You hear what he's saying? You've got to be able to look at behavior and say, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, this is sin, this is righteous. Luke chapter 12, he said, why do you not judge for yourselves what's right? You have to make these kind of judgments, Jesus says. Lost people would love to scream at us, you have no right to tell me that what I'm doing is sin. The Bible says, judge not. <laughs> but they're abusing scripture, and you know that. Well, I'm taking too much time. For time's sake, I need to just read the rest of this tremendous chapter without comment. There's so much here, but let's at least read it. So, judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out that speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see that there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly that take that speck that's in your brother's eye. 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus is our foundation. His word is truth. And if we build our lives on Him and on His truth, we will stand firm. But if we don't, the day will come when there will be a great and horrible collapse. We're apparently living in days when the majority of Americans no longer see the point of clinging to God's truth or of building on the foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That just sounds dumb to them. Apparently, the majority of our elected officials now believe they can decide for themselves without any input from God what is right. And many are calling evil good and good evil. Isaiah warned us of that. And many of them are calling for Christian voices to be silenced. And many Christians seeing the writing on the wall may even voluntarily choose to be silent rather than risk being called names or risk being unpopular. Guys, we could be heading into some very difficult storms more than ever before in the past. Could be. But listen, He will never leave us. He said, I'll never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And listen, He's an expert at giving peace in the time of the storm. In difficult times, He is eager and delighted to show us that He can be the source of our strength. And He can be the strength of our lives. So listen, guys, whatever happens, we just need to keep our focus on Him. He'll carry us through. He will. And one wonderful way to do that is by continually offering up to Him the highest praise we know how to offer. It's important, guys. Helps us keep our perspective. So with that in mind, I want us to conclude this study today by joining with the choir and orchestra of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Vicki and I have really been enjoying that choir. And I think this great song of worship will help us be able to obey the command that Jesus gave us that we looked at back in verse 23. No matter what the storm, we'll be able to rejoice in that day and to leap for joy.
that's about as awesome as it gets. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for causing this incredible song to be written and performed so powerfully. Thank you that we get to worship you with it. Thank you that it reminds us what an awesome God you are. And that no matter what the storm, you're the source of our strength. You're the strength of our lives. And we can just praise you with total praise, Lord. Teach us how to do that well. We look forward to doing it in eternity, Lord, to praising you with voices that will never get tired and wear out, with bodies that are designed to last forever at that point. It's going to be exciting, Lord. We know it's, it's in our future if we'll just keep our focus on you. Meanwhile, Lord, help us to stand firm, loving, gracious, kind, but to stand firm, to stay in this battle that you put us in until you call us home. And Lord, again, we pray for those precious babies. On this day of all days, we remember those precious babies. We pray you'd save the babies as my wife often prays. We pray that you would somehow help people realize how precious they are and stop this horrific Holocaust in America. All glory and praise to you, Lord. Thank you for being on your throne, for being the same now and forever. We praise you. We love you in Jesus name. Amen.